0: going to do, your work schedule, your play schedule, and then something comes out of left field and messes up your day planner, right? A phone, amen, amen. Cindy, it feels me. So um, we, maybe it's a, a phone call from somebody, uh, some kind of an accident, your tire is flat, there was snow coming that I wasn't planning on having to shovel my driveway all day. Whatever it was, it came and messed up your schedule, your plan, and you're feeling like this guy, right? You are at your wits end, or maybe there's somebody in your life that you just don't understand why they just simply won't do what you tell them to do, right? Like, it's not that hard. Just listen and obey, right? There seem to be these people who have the audacity not to follow our orders. And, And what we find is that you and I are what I would call power hungry. We're power hungry. I want the control over the remote, what channel I'm watching, what volume we're watching that channel or that television program at. Maybe it's that I want power over my schedule. I want power. I want control over my relationships. I want power or, or control over my life, right? And we want to do it like Frank Sinatra said, right? That I did it my way. Good job. I see why we don't have a choir here at Peninsula Grace. That's beautiful. Um, no, we, we, now listen, power hungry, that, it looks different for different people, right? Like some people that might come out more direct, like just, a, just kind of a direct kind of desire to control. For some of us, that's passive aggression. For some of us, that's emotional manipulation, But it comes out in all of us and the reason it does is because at the heart of sin at the heart of sin is pride and and pride has a desire to be our own gods of our own universes where we're in control of in power of of ourselves and the things around us we saw it with lucifer before the garden right i will ascend i will be god we saw it with adam and eve in the garden will decide what's right and wrong what's good and evil not god and we see it in our own lives every day. It's the story of mankind. It's the story of mankind. This is what Warren Wiersbe says. It says, the history of mankind has been the story of the discovery of power and the application of power. And he kind of walks us through uh, what that's looked like in, and over the, the, the years. The first one was manpower. That was the first kind of power. And it's really frustrating when you can't find um, pictures on Google Images. So I just snapped a quick pic of my bicep and put it up there. Uh, <laughs> So there you are. Uh, There's horsepower as we kind of evolved and figured out how we could harness animals to do the work that our muscles couldn't do as well. Then we went to steam power, and that really changed uh, how quickly our world was moving. Then we went to electric power, And, and we even know today we can harness the power of the atom with atomic power. But what he says is, each step on the power path has enriched mankind, both materially and financially, but it's doubtful that we're actually richer spiritually, Have these technologies made us better, more godly people? They haven't. We are able to harness today the powers of the universe. But we can't control ourselves or keep selfish, power-hungry people from destroying the world and its inhabitants. And you look around today and you see the evidence of sin from North Pole to South Pole. It says the basic power needed today is none of those powers. It's spiritual power. And that power is only found one source, that's Jesus Christ. The series, as we unwrap these names of Jesus in Isaiah 9, you see we're starting strategically putting them on the the little panels up here if you notice patterns. Okay, that's great. Uh, Week one, we said that Jesus is wonderful. Isaiah 9, he is wonderful. There's only one source in the universe that will satisfy our hunger and thirst for awe and worship and wonder, and his name is Jesus. And then we saw that he's a wonderful counselor. Last week, we said there's only one source of true wisdom, and that's Jesus. And he manifests that wisdom to us to show how to live our lives in his word, in in his own example in the word, in the gospels, and then in the spirit of counsel and wisdom that lives in us. And then he also gives us other people who are spirit-led and and who know and understand the Bible, and and we remind each other of those truths. We need to be doing that on a daily basis. Then the cool thing, as we're seeing today's name, is not only does he give us the wisdom to show how to live the life that he called us to live. But in the name Mighty God, we're going to see that Jesus shows us the power to carry out those hows in our lives. Mighty, mighty God. And what we're going to find this morning, though, that same power of Jesus lives in each one of us who are followers of him, but that power, the way it manifests itself, may not be anything like what you and I would think of when we think of power. So two things we're going to see in this name, Mighty God. First of all, that he is God. Jesus, the Messiah, is God. Now, in, in chapter 9, verse 6 of Isaiah here, we saw, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and, and one of these names is Mighty God. Now, you pause there and you go, okay, well, there's been this debate over kind of the, the, the history of the church as to whether or not Jesus is God or claimed to be God. And it's written right here that the Messiah would be called Mighty God. So if Jesus is the Messiah, carry the one, Jesus is God, right? That should be case closed, right? Why do we even argue anymore, right? Well, hold your hermeneutical horses, hombres, right? Because there's a little bit more complicated than that. This word El, this is the Hebrew word El that meant God. Now, the thing about this word, context can dictate the meaning of some of these words. So this word could mean God, like the one true Jehovah God, but it could also mean someone who is God-like, It could mean a powerful person, like a man of rank, a hero, could be describing them. This word El, in other contexts, could be used to describe angels, spiritual beings. It could be used to describe a God or even a false God, like an idol or or a demon. It could refer to the one true God, the Jehovah Yahweh God. It could also just simply mean mighty things in nature or strength and and power, things that are mighty, like like a hurricane or a tornado. And when the, when the, when the people of, of Isaiah's time, the Hebrew audience, first heard this, in their context, they would often give divine attributes to people like kings and military conquerors, these winners. And they would say they have the strength of God, that God would place his spirit or his strength inside of them to do these tasks. So when they heard the Messiah was going to be called El, they wouldn't have necessarily gone, oh, this is God with skin on. They didn't know what you and I know from the Gospels. And even today, people try to say that, no, Jesus actually wasn't God. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus was God. In fact, they make a distinction here. that They say, yes, in this passage, they call him Mighty God. But it was little case G, little case M, that he wasn't the God. And they draw a distinction between Mighty God and Almighty God. And it was only Almighty God who was the one God, the Elohim, the God of gods. But the problem with that is, first of all, the Bible doesn't make that distinction. And even if it did in Revelation, very interesting statement by Jesus. Revelation 1a, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus himself, he calls himself the Almighty God. So even if there was a distinction, Jesus has made that claim. And this phrase in chapter 9 that's attributed to the Messiah is the same exact phrase that just one chapter later Isaiah uses to talk about God the Father. He says, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Same phrase applied to the Messiah to come as it was to the God that they knew in the Old Testament. As you peel back the layers of prophecy and then as you hear the words of Jesus himself and the New Testament apostles, there is no doubt in my mind That Jesus not only was God, but he actually had to be God. As you read your New Testament, look at some of the words. We just come out and they they claim it. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Logos, Jesus. The Logos was God himself. uh, 1 John, same author, he says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we uh, are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Titus 2.13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See there again. Romans 9.5, Paul says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Hebrews 1.8, and this is God talking, he's quoting Psalm 45 here, but of the Son, he says, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever. And ever, we see the claims of Jesus' deity littering the Bible. And then if there's anybody who would have been a hater, a doubter, it would have been doubting Thomas himself. But Thomas' own words, after he had seen the risen Jesus, and he had seen the nail holes, what did he exclaim? My Lord and my God. Jesus is God. And in fact, Jesus made these claims himself, to, as the Messiah, that he would be, that he, w- that he was also God. In Mark chapter 2, you remember the story of the, of the paralytic that's lowered down to the roof to be healed by Jesus? What are Jesus' words to the paralytic? You would have expected him to say, get up off the mat, you're going to be able to walk now. What he says to him is, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He knew that was the deeper problem than the physical was the spiritual. And the scribes and Pharisees flip their lid. They say, because they get it, they say, he said, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They got it. That if Jesus is claiming, I can forgive your sins, that your sins are forgiven, he is claiming to have the authority of God. And they said, You're, this is blasphemy. Which it would be if it wasn't true. If somebody else was trying to claim to have the authority of sin, they should kill him. That's exactly what the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees wanted to do. We see it in John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am that's not bad grammar he is claiming the same personal name that god spoke to moses the burning bush i am the existent one the eternally self-existent one jesus makes this claim and the pharisees understand the audacity of what he's claiming here and so verse 359 they picked up stones to throw at him they wanted to kill him because he was claiming to be god and by the way if they were right and he was wrong They should have killed him. Now, why does this matter? Why why does Jesus have to be God? Well, a couple things. First of all, if he's going to be who he claimed to be, to to, to die in our place, to be the sufficient sacrifice, substitute in, in my place for my sin, the only one that could take my place would have to be perfect and eternal. And only God is perfect and eternal. So if Jesus isn't God, then we're still in our sins today. This is a big deal. And not only that, all this worship, what did we just sing before we got up here? We sang in the beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus. We're gonna have to root through that filing cabin out there and throw away most of our songs. Because when we sing worthy is the lamb. That, that kind of praise and worship is only for God. And if Jesus isn't God, you and I are committing the most heinous sin imaginable, the sin of idolatry, worshiping somebody other than the true God. And there's nothing for us but destruction ahead. John Calvin said it this way, if indeed Christ had not been God, it would have been unlawful to glory in him. For it is written, quoting Jeremiah, cursed be he that trusteth in man. If Jesus was just a man and not God, and we trusteth in him, we got problems. We can only trusteth and worshipeth God. But the good news is Jesus was God. Jesus still is God. And Jesus, Jesus is worshipped as God. And the adjective they use here for this God is not just that he is El, he is God. He is also mighty. Jesus is mighty. This word in the Hebrew is Gebauer, which I love that word. It sounds like, remember the old Batman show when they're like, Pam, pow, it sounds like gebower, right? Like, it just sounds powerful. It's an onomatopoeia, if you will, right? So this gebower talks about the the strength or might. In fact, in the Hebrew, it meant mighty or strong. And if it was a noun, it could refer to a warrior or a champion, a chief, or a giant. Like we said, it was attributed to, to, to winners. And so, like, one of my favorite shows, American Ninja Gebower, right? And you see these guys doing these... Feats, these str- these feats of strength that i could never do right and this is a struggle for me just to do five and five walking from place to place with my hips right but to see them scale these walls and hold on to things for as long as they do it shows this this gebauer, this strength that they have it's mighty it's something to behold now it says that this l this god is gebower what is he powerful mighty to do well we see his strength in creation right Colossians 1, for through him, Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth, and he holds all creation together. That's power. That's a mighty God that could speak, Genesis 1 says, speak the word into the world and the universe into being by your breath, by your word, and then sustain it. That's power. And what scientists and astrophysicists are spending their, their entire vocations just to try to explore and label, God created, Jesus created with his word. That's a powerful God. But even more powerful than His his might to create is His mightiness to save. To save. Isaiah 63, It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It's I, the Lord, who has the power to save. God, Jesus, mighty God, had not only the power to make you, but to remake you when you sinned and went astray. The power to bring you back into right relationship with God. So who is this Jesus? Who is this mighty God? When we we see this Messiah in the Gospels, named Jesus, the one who saves, how do we see his strength? How do we see this play out in the life of Christ? Well, first of all, we see his mightiness in life. He is mighty in life. For 33 years, mighty God, El Gebauer, walks the face of the earth with skin and bone like you and I. And the amazing thing that we see here, Jesus faced all the same temptations to sin, and do his own thing, to hold the remote control in his own hand, and not in the Father's, just like you and I. But the test was given to him, the test that every, listen to me, everybody else had failed. Satan and a third of the angels failed the test. Adam and Eve in the garden. The fruit-dealing snake failed the test. And every person since then has failed the test, has succumbed to the sin of desiring to be their own God, and not letting God be God. And here comes Jesus walking to this earth, facing the same temptations with sin, Satan, and the world. Listen, my niece's birth today was just a couple of weeks ago. I could barely overcome the temptation to have a second piece of cake, right? Get behind me, gluten. Yeah. I did it. I only had one piece, by the way. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, th- but the last Adam, the last Adam, this is, so, this is so beautiful. The last Adam had the power to do what the first Adam could never do. To overcome the temptation to make himself what only God can be. And he was God. (laughs) This is the crazy thing. In the wilderness, as as he's being tempted by Satan, and this is what Satan was trying to do, to get him off his game. If he can get Jesus to sin, then he can't save the world, right? He won't be the perfect substitute any longer. I love the way Charles Spurgeon talks about what Satan's trying to do in the wilderness. He says, not one arrow out of the quiver of hell was spared. The whole were shot against him. Every arrow was aimed against him with all the might of Satan's archer's And that is no little, and yet without sin or taint of sin, more than conqueror he stood. That's a mighty God. A mighty God did not come to the temptation of sin. And he came and he lived a perfect life. The mighty God that Isaiah had predicted hundreds of years ago. But it wasn't just that he lived a perfect life, though he had to. It's also that he was mighty in death. Think about for a moment the power of a sin, just one sin. Think about the maybe the most the worst sin that you've ever committed in your life as far as just had the most ripple effect. Maybe you think about a a sin where somebody cheats on their spouse, and you see the ripple effect. You you see that the chain of sinful chaos that can come from one sin, the power that can be unleashed. In that one moment, remember when Achan told a lie, and that one lie brought a a defeat to the whole nation of Israel in their next battle. And then he and his entire family die because of that one sin in that one moment. So that's one sin. And now you think about, you know, just here on a Sunday morning, about 300 people coming through this gymnasium in two services. And think about the power of all of that sin from 300 sinners over the course of just a week. And then you, and you play that out, 300 sinners in an entire lifetime of sin. And then multiply that by the billions of people that have walked this earth. It's a lot of sin power. But what mighty God did when he came to this earth, and he hung on that tree, he bore the sin of every person who has ever lived. in that one moment... All of that power funneled down on him and the wrath of God against him. And in this, in this Jesus, he did, he, he paid for it all. He stripped all of that sin of its power, paying for it in full, to Telestai. That's a mighty God. That's a mighty God, more powerful than all the sin of all the people of all time. Not only was he mighty in his life and then in his death, but he was mighty in his life again. Because he, for three days, it sure looked like the cold chains of death had won. And it looked like he, that Jesus was defeated. He'd been killed. But at the exact hour that God had appointed, he was raised to life. And Spurgeon, again, he says this, The sunlight of the third day gave the warning, and he snapped the bands of death as if they were but toe, <laughs> and came forth to life as the Lord of life and glory. And Romans 1 says this proved that he was the God, the Gebauer El, he claimed to be. Verse 4 of Romans 1, he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word Christ there is the the New Testament kurios, which means Christ, the Messiah. He is the king that Isaiah was predicting. And the Lord shows that he is God. This is the Messiah King, God, in the flesh who is now defeated sin and death forever and ever and ever. But that power, that, that power of, of Jesus, the mighty God, it might look a lot different than what we think of when we think of power. The last point I want to make is this power looked upside down, an upside down might, or what the Bible calls strength in, in weakness. See, when you think of someone who's powerful, what, what comes to your mind? What kind of a person? And I was thinking, I would think of a bodybuilder, right? Someone who's physically strong, you might think of a king, uh, someone who has a lot of political clout, right? Uh, y- y- maybe it's a CEO, someone with political uh, muscle, uh, like a tycoon of a business. Uh, you might think of a president. Maybe you'd think of a superhero uh, or a superhero pastor, right? This was me as multiplication man when I was student teaching at KBH Elementary. In my hand, I had my multipliers. You see what I, oh boy. Um, <sighs> So when you think of strong people, those are all the people you think of, right? (laughs) So we have our mind, like physical strength, the ability to to overpower others, to be in charge of a lot of things, a lot of money. And at a superficial glance, Jesus looked like everything but powerful. You think about the way Jesus came down to this earth. This is not how you or I would have written the story, right? He didn't come down like Lady Gaga at the Super Bowl. I was born this way, right? That's not. He was not born that way, right? He he didn't come like Prince Ali, right? With the elephants and the flags and everybody going make way, here he comes, beat the drums, right? That's that. Jesus did not come with all this fanfare and this entourage. He came in the weakest, most fragile state that any of us will ever be in in our lives. He came as a baby. And even as a baby, he didn't come with a silver spoon and a golden crib and a palace. He came in a borrowed, stinky animal trough. And he left in someone else's tomb. And this Jesus, man, he didn't come. Nobody of earthly importance was announcing the coming of this king. There were some angels in a field with some dirty shepherds, outcasts of society, were the first ones to welcome this king to earth. And then as he grew up, Jesus was not some, some teen sensation, some pop icon that was, that was trending on Twitter. He lived most of his adult life in, in obscurity, as a carpenter. And we don't have anything documented about the majority of Jesus' life. And as an adult, as the king, he wasn't mustering up an army, sharpening his sword and pumping iron to get stronger. He was walking around with fishermen, Eating with prostitutes. Talking about things like loving each other and turning the other cheek. And then you look at how Jesus claimed that throne itself. It wasn't with the pomp and circumstance that, that we picture with an earthly coronation. It was with a crown of thorns and a robe and a sign that said he was the king but intended to mock him, not honor him. And when he said, just like that serpent in the wilderness would be lifted high, so will the Son of Man be lifted high, he was lifted high, but it wasn't on a throne, it was on a cross. And Jesus showed universe-creating all-powerful might, not by taking out other lives, but by the laying down of his own life. That's the power Jesus showed. See, Israel expected this powerful king to lead them in this revolutionary war against Rome. That they expected a Messiah that was going to mow down their enemies. They did not picture, they did not expect a lamb that came to be slaughtered. And, and, and you're looking at this and going, this is supposed to be power? Dying? That's stupid. That's, that's weak. That's That's defeat. That's exactly what the world would say. 1 Corinthians 1 The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. See, it's the world that sees things upside down, not our God. This wonderful counsel that we said last week. Offers us wisdom that to the world looks like foolishness. This mighty God offers us strength that to the world looks like weakness. Dying looks like weakness, right? It looks like fool, it looks like loss. If you had two people in a duel and one of them shoots and kills the other one, who won? You don't walk over to the dead guy and go, man, you crushed it, right? But Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, he knew the real enemy. The real enemy wasn't outward. It wasn't the Roman Empire. Remember, the battle's not against flesh and blood. He knew the real enemy was within us. It's the sin nature. And ultimately, the problem there is that we are rightly judged and condemned against this holy God because of that sin. And so to overcome that sin, he had to pay the price. He had to cover our debt, pay our bill. That could only happen one way. The shedding of blood of a perfect, eternal life. The life that he had. And he had the power, the gebower, to lay down and pick up back again. This is what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 10. No one can take my life from me. He says, let me make it very clear. This is not going to be the Romans. This is not going to be the Jews being stronger than I am. He says, I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the power or authority to lay it down when I want to. And also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. Jesus, God, the sovereign, was in control of this entire Situation. He lay it down. Nobody took it from him. Nobody out, out nobody outstronged God. I don't think that's a word. And when he came back to life, this resurrection proved that he had paid in full the debt of every sin of every person for all time. And now he offers you and I. And this is the crazy part. That, that new life, the new, the, the new resurrected Jesus that, that overcame uh, temptation, that resisted sin, that is, that is the power to create and to save, that same power, that same power lives in you and I. That's what the Bible says, it says in in Ephesians 1, I also pray, says Paul, "that, that you will understand the great, the incredible greatness of God's power for us, in us, for those who believe. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Do you see this? Romans eight says the same thing. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as Christ raised Christ, just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. You have the power of the resurrected Jesus living in you today. And we can skip down the seat, s- the street, singing my Jock Jam song. I've got the power. Nobody's with me. Okay, that's cool. Um, here we go. Here we go. The uh, The power, though, to do what? See, he didn't give us the power, just like Jesus didn't come to take out other flesh and blood. He does not give us these big old muscles where we can start punching people, taking other people out, exerting our will, doing our thing. He gives us the power to die to our old nature, to sin itself, and to live a life of fruit-bearing joy to our God. But to tap into that power i got to let go of the remote control. i got to let go of my day planner. i got to let go of the other people in my life and realize I'm not my own God. And I do not have the power to do what only Jesus Christ can do in and through me. This is one of the reasons that God lets us go through trials to teach us this lesson. Because we are so prone, even as believers, to grab that remote control once again. Remember when Paul asked God, he said he's had this thorn in his flesh, which we're still not totally sure what that was. He asked for that, that thorn to be removed. And what was, what was the reply from, from his God? 2 Corinthians 12, it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And this is where he goes with it. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, whatever comes my way. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. He realized that what God was leading him through was showing him that he was a jar of clay. And that there was going to be anything good, anything fruitful to come of his life, it would have to be a power source outside of himself. And oftentimes it's only when we're brought to the end of ourselves and we see our own weakness, we see the only solution is to die to self in order to really live, that we're going to surrender control the powerful, risen Jesus. This is the upside-down nature of the gospel, right? This is what Jesus called us to. He said, you want to live? You got to die. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross. You want to save your life? You have to lose it. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? You want to be the first of all? Then be last. Serve everybody else. You want to be rich? Give it all away. He says, you want to be wise? Preach the foolishness of the gospel to this world. And everybody else, this looks like weakness. This looks like foolishness. But it's only when I let go of control that I find the true power of Christ in me. So I ask you this as we close this. What burdens did you come here under this morning? What trial? Maybe for you there's a fractured relationship that seems beyond all repair. Maybe for you there's an addiction that's new or that's very, very old, and it seems like you could never overcome that thing, no matter how subtle or how obvious it is to others. Maybe there is a trial. There's some kind of pain or suffering in your life or the life of a loved one. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's mental. Maybe it's probably all of the above. And there are days when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and when we don't see how in the world we could make it through this thing. And it sure seems like this mighty God, if he's so strong... If he's, if he's done this thing for us, then why is not he taking this burden away? I was reading a book. The book was on marriage, but um, I quoted it earlier in the series. But Gary and Betsy Ricucci, they talk about this. And it was in the context of marriage. But I, I believe this applies to all of our conflicts and sufferings. This is what they had to say. And this can be a tough word, but I want, you, I want us to hear this together. Because, they said, God is sovereign... And ever at work for our good and our growth in godliness, because we have a strong God who's using all things for good, conflict or suffering or trials can always be redemptive. In other words, to be used for something good, a purpose. All conflict can be resolved. Yes, all. We have to underline that a couple times. We have thick heads to hear. Our God is able to resolve them. Our God, our God is able to resolve them. Therefore, any resignation, giving up, any any despair, and ultimately hopelessness, you may feel emotions, you may feel regarding your situation, it stems far more from an inadequate view of God than it does from any view, accurate or inaccurate, of yourself or your circumstance. In other words, what we're saying to God is, my circumstance is bigger than you are. My, my problem is stronger than you are. You can't overcome this one. There's finally a monkey wrench that we found that goes beyond the limits of your sovereignty. If God could raise Jesus from the dead, you think there's anything in my life or yours that he's not powerful enough to be there for us in? And he's not going to be able to finish what he started in us? He's not going to be with us through the valley to see us through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, as surely as Jesus is alive, there is hope and there is power, gebower, from that L available to us today. Now, now, now here are the promise, and this is such an interesting way that Paul, what, what Paul is going to pray for here in Colossians 1. He says this, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, the power of God. But here's what he says the power is for. For all endurance and patience with joy. Did you hear that? This is the power that's available to us today. This is the superpower we have. But it's not the kind of power that we think of. It's a power that that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. To make it through any situation. To be able to endure. To be able to be patient when we don't know how long this is going to go and to actually have joy in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the pain. His power doesn't promise us no hardship, that we're just going to skip through the spiritual bed of roses until we go see Jesus. What he promises here is that his power will sustain us through the trial, through the valley of the shadow of death. And he will make you more like Jesus because of this. If you let him, you will find true joy in delighting in the wonderful counselor, in the mighty God who's with you and will never leave you. So let me ask you, do you believe Jesus is not just the mighty God? Do you believe he's your mighty God? Mighty to specifically save you from the specific sins and trials and pains of your life today? Do you believe he's big enough? Do you believe he's strong enough your life? Depends on that question. Will we give the remote control over to him? Will we allow him to be strong, or are we going to stubbornly still hold on to our own strength, which is really just weakness? We believe the words. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Father, we are weak. Jesus is strong. And those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus, who have decided to follow him as Savior and Lord, To place our faith, not in ourselves, but in him. To see that we are weak, but he is strong. We're promised that he's with us. That we belong to you. And that as we go through these trials that you have promised us. You said if anyone wants to live a godly life, they will be persecuted. They will face suffering. Lord, you never promised us that we wouldn't face trials or hardships. But you have promised us in your word that you will give us the endurance and patience and joy to not just make it through, but to be more than conquerors. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us today. Father, give us the grace to believe that. To wrap our arms around that truth today when we need it so desperately. And in the midst of that, we come to discover that, Lord, that we can come just as we are. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we can come in our weak, foolish selves. And you accept us just as we are. Because Jesus is the strength for us. Jesus is the wisdom for us. And that we are accepted. Because of the life that he laid down of his own power and authority and raised up again in his own power and authority. And it's that power that lives in us today to be able to do the things that you've asked us to do. May we embrace our weakness because of the truth that when we're weak, when we quit trying to control our lives and just make bigger messes of them, we find that this strong God who is sovereign leads us into green pastures, leads us besides quiet waters, and even when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, is with us and offers us this joy. May we come as we are, finding the beauty in the powerful, wonderful name of Jesus. It's in that name that we sing, that we pray, and that we grow. Amen.